So the thing about family is that you don't really realize how weird they are until you get around other people. Um, last Sunday, we went to Ikea. If you've never had the family trip to Ikea, you are missing out. Like in the ancient world, they had like the hanging gardens of Babylon and the temple of Artemis in Ephesus and the giant pyramid in Giza. Today we have Ikea. Like Ikea is a wonder of Swedish consumerism. It is gloriously filled with this trendy yet oh-so-cheap furniture. And the most amazing thing about it is that it's named with names like Ektortolsa and Flaita, and you might not be able to pronounce it, but you can put together this entire room with nothing but a hex wrench. It's amazing. So we go there, the whole family, my wife and my two kids, six and eight, and we get there and we're all excited we're going to drop the kids off in Schmorland, which is their like kids area, and we're going to go through this romantic stroll through exotic or, uh, Sweden. And um, we get there, but Schmorland is full. No, das ist nicht gut. So, so we're like, whoa, no, what are we going to do? And so we decide to do what parents do, is the divide and conquer method. Okay, you go do real shopping. I will take the kids on a cultural experience. And we go there, and it looks like, you know, Swedish meatballs and Swedish fish. And, and then we do what any dad would do. He would test out all the furniture with the kids. Okay, kids, which couch is the bounciest? Is it the Tifola or the Vixdrog? And like, asking my six-year-old to try and read these words, it was awesome. And so we go through, and the employees must have loved us at that point. And we walk into one of those, if you've ever been there, you know that there's all these like prefab, like, Swedish apartments in there that are just like awesome. So we walk into one in particular and there's this light hanging down similar to this, but it's different. It looks, I promise you, it looks exactly like one of those lights. Like if you're in the dentist chair, there's dentist lights that they use. And so I do what any self-respecting father with two children would do right then. I take it, I point it towards me and I go, look kids, this looks like I'm at the dentist office. And then I make noises of gurgling and sucking and drilling, right? Totally normal. This is what we do in my family. This is what we've always done in my family. This is, this is what has always, as long as my kids have been alive, this has been our normal. But last Sunday, something happened that had never happened before. When I grabbed it and pulled it towards me, my daughter ran up to me, grabbed me, and said, Dad, we're in public! And for a moment, I was like, this has never happened before. I was like, saddened, my little girl's growing up. And, and then I did what any sensitive, loving dad would do. I grabbed it again and got even louder. <laughs> Until she walked away like, I don't even know this man. Like, I love being a dad. So, the thing about family is that you don't realize how weird you are until you get around other people. I think the same thing's true in the church family, the family of God, you know. For me, I was born, and within two weeks of my life, I was in one of these places. And it was just normal. Like, every year, as long as I can remember, I've always pastelled up and, and shown up to church on Sunday morning. In fact, when I grew up, my parents were here. You could ask them. We were real Christians, not like you 
lazy people. We went to sunrise service, full breakfast, and then a full worship service after that. That's what a real Christian does. You have to sing Up From the Gravy Arose at least three verses of that. And we did all that. We knew that. And that for me was totally, totally normal. Like the Easter story, that's totally normal. And then I go off to college and I'm put together with this roommate who is like the tidiest, nicest man I've ever met. And he happens to be a complete atheist. Second generation Serbian. So when I say, hey, I'm an evangelical Christian, he's like, he, he doesn't even have a context for that. Like, I might as well tell him I, like, I'm an alien or something. He's never, he, what, what's that? And I still remember coming around to Easter time. He's like, so, so tell, me, tell me this whole Easter thing again. Like, what's the story? And I'm like, this is the greatest news in the world. And I'm sure once you hear it, you're going to want to become a Christian too. So, so listen to me really carefully. Okay, ready? God became a man. And he's like, wait, wait, um, is this the same God you call Father? And I'm like, well, kind of. You know, there's God the Father and God the Son. But anyways, so God the Son becomes a man named Jesus, and he dies on a cross for our sins, and then he rises from the dead. And he's like, wait, wait you mean like a zombie? I'm like, well, uh, kind, no. No, not, not. And I just realized, wow, this is weird. Like, I didn't even realize how weird it was until I had a roommate who had never even heard of this stuff before. In fact, he was the one who introduced me to this definition of Christianity. Christianity, the belief that a cosmic Jewish zombie who is his own father can make you live forever if you symbolically eat his flesh and telepathically tell him to (laughs) accept him as your master so that he can remove an evil force from your soul that is present in humanity because a rib woman was convinced by a talking snake to eat from a magical tree. And I'm like, yeah, no, kind of, kind of. Kind of. So this is totally wrong, totally heretical, but, but there's something to that. Like what we're talking about today, this is not normal. We're beyond the bounds of like reason and normal logic, normal experience. Dead people don't dematerialize and come back to life in some superhuman form around us. That does not happen. The whole point of the resurrection is that it's a singular event. Nothing like that has happened before and nothing like it has happened since. So I don't know. I don't know why you're here today. Maybe your mom forced you to come. Glad you're here. Maybe your neighbor like straight up tricked you. They're like, hey, let's go for brunch. And they're like, I hear this place has good donuts. You're like, oh, shoot. But more likely... um, this is the umpteenth time you've been to Easter and you're here because you've always been to Easter, right? You've uh, heard about the women and the rolled away stone, the Roman guards. He has risen indeed so many times. Like this all sounds perfectly normal to you. Wherever you're at this morning, I hope you don't miss the fact that this story is insanely amazing if it's true. That this message is not just my message, this story, not just my stories, not stories about Ikea, but this story about a man, God becoming a man, dying on a cross, rising from the dead. This story is objectively, objectively, the most influential uh, story in, in history itself. 
Like it literally cut history in half. It's, it's shaped the lives of billions of people more than any other story. And the claim is that this is a true story. And there are all kinds of logical, historical, beyond a reasonable doubt reasons to believe this story. There are more than 500 eyewitnesses, multiple appearances, witnesses who not only told the story, but then were tortured for that story, and many, many of whom died for the truth of that story. But even more than this, um, if that's all the resurrection is, some really influential story or some true story, then we could just have, you know, a class or a lecture right now. But this is not a lecture. This is a sermon. If all we have is a lecture, some historical fact, we're missing the best part, that Jesus didn't just die and rise again for the world. He died and rose again for you. He died and rose again for me. That this story is unavoidably and even at times awkwardly personal. That it requires a personal response from a personal God. And today I'm going to look at one of the most intimate personal tellings of this story we have. I want to see and hear and experience this admittedly weird story through the eyes of the firsthand witnesses. Through um, an uneducated fisherman. Through a woman with a really, really dark past. So this, this of course, is the story. And the story, we're going to go John chapter 20. If you do have your Bible, your phone, you want to do your phone app, we're going, to, we're going to be going through that text today. John chapter 20. Let me bring you up to speed. This guy named John, the Gospel of John, is written by a guy named John. He was a fisherman, right? The first time we ever meet John, he's sitting there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee with his brother named James, and they're sitting there like mending these nets, and Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. And we don't know anything else. All we know is they immediately drop everything. They drop their nets, they, they leave the boat, they leave dear old dad, and they walk and they follow Jesus for the next three years. They completely leave their family business, and we know that he's an eyewitness following Jesus. He's there for almost everything that happens over those next three years. So raising the girl from the dead, he was there. Feeding the 5,000, transfiguration, walking on water, garden of Gethsemane, even at the foot of the cross, he was there. And so we get this in the gospel of John, we have this eyewitness account of what, not just the facts, but what he saw and felt and even at times smelled when he walked in places. So from the very first words of the gospel of John, uh, some of my favorites. When I do my mic test, I usually use these words because I just love them. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That we get from the very first words of this, that when John's writing, he doesn't think, after spending three years with this guy named Jesus, he does not think that Jesus is a normal man. There's no question, whether whatever we believe, there's no question that John believes this man is God himself. The very creating word of God. And in the next 17 chapters, from John chapter 1 through the end of John chapter 17, 
he's going to give us a picture of a man who walks in a wholeness and a holiness and a righteousness and a strength and a power and an authority that this world has never seen. So, so you and I, we speak all the time. Hey, hey, how's it going? Or we tell people to do things. But when he speaks, dead people come to life. When he speaks, like he says, pick up your mat and walk. And a paralyzed guy starts dancing around. He speaks. There's this dead girl. And he's down at the side and says, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, wake up. And she does. Like, that's a power to speak that you and I don't have. Like, he speaks in the winds and the wave. They obey. He touches. His touch, even touching the hem of his garment, can heal you. He sees a leper. You know what leprosy was? There's a variety of skin diseases, but back then it's basically a disease in which your skin starts rotting off your own body, and they believed it to be highly infectious, so no one would ever touch them. And what does he do? He comes up, he sees the leper, and he loves them, and he touches them. And rather than getting infected with leprosy, what happens? The person who had leprosy ends up like a Noxzema commercial. Like, this isn't normal. And so for 17 chapters, we see this picture of a man who knows nothing but love and healing and wholeness and forgiveness. But then comes John chapter 18 and 19. And that's when on Thursday, he's betrayed, arrested, falsely accused, beaten. On Friday, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, nailed to a tree, naked, writhing in pain, screaming. And he died, buried in the tomb. Saturday, he's buried in that tomb, or tomb just like that. And then Sunday brings us to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 begins like this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, and when she saw the stone had been removed, she saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So, So first we need to meet this character here, Mary So Mary, um, you need to know the story of here. It's uh, Luke chapter 7. You might know the story. There's this big power dinner going on. All these important, wealthy, powerful men are sitting there. They're having dinner with Jesus. And, And while they're there in the middle of this meeting, this woman walks into the room. She's not named. We're not quite sure All we know is that she's a woman who had lived a sinful life, which is usually a way of saying she had a profession that I can't mention on Easter morning. So we don't know the details, but we know that her very presence in this room is offensive. Like, she walks in the room, and they are disgusted with her. So somehow, into that room full of these judgmental, rich, powerful men, she is able to walk in, muster up the courage to walk in, goes to Jesus. What does she do? She falls on her knees, and she just starts weeping and weeping and weeping, and then she washes his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. And that whole time, the men are sitting there fuming like, Jesus, if you knew who this woman was, there's no way you'd let her touch you. What are you doing? What are you thinking? So Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, looks up at the host. His name's Simon. So Simon, I got a question for you. Crazy, crazy question. There's uh, two guys that owe this other guy a bunch of money. Like one guy owes him, let's say, 50 bucks. The other, uh, oh, 50,000. And the money lender decides 
you know what? That's enough. I'm going to forgive both the debts. 50 bucks and 50,000 wiped clean. Which one of those two guys would, would love the moneylender more? The guy who forgave the debts? And Simon's like, well, I suppose the one who was forgiven more. And Jesus is like, you suppose correctly? Yeah. He says, I want you to look at this woman here. This woman that you've been judging and despising. And this is the words. I tell you, her many sins have forgiven, been forgiven for she loved much. And then Jesus says those words, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. Now, we don't know who that woman was, but we know in the very next chapter, in Luke chapter 8, that, that Luke is then going to talk to us about the disciples. Here's the disciples. After this, Jesus went out with his disciples, and there were some women that went with him. And the women have a very special pedigree. It says the 12 were with him, and some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. So when when we're looking for um, hires on our ministry team, there's, you know, the basic questions we always ask, like, what's your ministry experience? What's your relationship with God? Have you ever had a demon in you? Jesus takes along the women who've been cured of evil spirits and diseases. That's his core women. And the first one listed is a woman named Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. So there's this ancient tradition that connects Luke chapter 7 with Luke chapter 8 as one thought. They think, you know, that Mary, that woman who washed Jesus' feet is Mary Magdalene. That's the ancient tradition. And we don't know that for sure. But here's what we can say and why they connected that so clearly in the ancient tradition is this. The first thing we can say absolutely clearly about Mary Magdalene is that she had a very, very dark past. I do not know what it looks like to have seven demons in you. But I know that it's not good. Nobody wants to live next door to the woman with seven demons in her. Nobody wants to hire the woman with seven demons. Nobody wants to date the woman with seven demons in her. This woman with seven demons in her will not pass our screening to work in our nursery, friends. She's damaged goods. She is broken and unwanted, and by this world's standards, she is completely, completely worthless. And Jesus is like, yeah, I want her. The one that nobody else wants. She's on my team. And the second thing we can say for sure about Mary Magdalene is that she loved Jesus. So back in John chapter 20, when we get to the tomb, we see this. We see all the men when all the men are running for their lives, where's Mary Meglin? Running to the tomb. Just the opposite. That she loved Jesus dead or alive. It didn't matter. She loved him. She didn't care what others thought. She didn't care what happened to her. She didn't care about anything except Jesus. And we see that when she gets to the tomb and sees that stone rolled away, she's not thinking, oh, Jesus must have rose from the dead. It's okay. No, she's thinking like, oh, are there grave... Like she's losing her mind. Were there grave robbers? Were, was the body moved? Like what's going on here? And so she runs, it says in verse 2, she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, I've taken, uh, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. I just want you to notice here, there's one of the, the other disciples, the one Jesus loved. Um, 
Have you ever noticed that the disciples all get like really awesome nicknames? Like, I don't know, I, maybe we read this too, like, church-like, but these are, like, professional wrestler nicknames, you know? You've got, like, Peter the Rock. And you got, e- even Judas, he's the betrayer. You got uh, Thomas Didymus, you know what that means? The double. All right? It's kind of cool, kind of like ninja names. James and John, everyone else called them the sons of thunder. But when we come to John, what he calls himself, he's like, yeah, I'm the one that Jesus loves. So I don't know about you guys. <laughs> I'm the one that Jesus loves. I don't know how he ever got that nickname or if that's just the name he gave himself, but it's clearly better. But I digress. Verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, started for the tomb and both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, is there some deep spiritual meaning to the fact that John beat Peter to the tomb? I have no clue. Verse 5. So he bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along with him, went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So here's the picture we get. The tomb is empty, almost. It's almost empty. The, the grave clothes, the burial clothes, those linens that they'd wrap around you and kind of make you kind of mummified, they're still in there. And the obvious thing about this verse, the thing that we absolutely cannot miss, is the fact that this is not grave robbers. Grave robbers don't come in and tidy up after they leave. They don't do that. So the whole theory that, oh, grave robbers came in and stole Jesus, it doesn't make any sense. But there's, there's something else possibly here. I don't know. Some scholars, most notably the late guy, um, John Stott, guy I really, really respect, suggests that in the Greek, if you go back and you read that phrase, the cloth was still lying in its place, that it's a term that means the cloth was exactly where it had been as if the body had just dematerialized and was no longer there. It's the idea of like a chrysalis. That suddenly the body is gone and the clothes. That the image is not necessarily this, but if we take those words to mean that, it would be more like this. I don't know. Like, I I don't know what they saw. I don't know exactly. Here's the thing. If that's what this is saying, this is full-blown weird, right? Bodies don't dematerialize. That's not a thing. Except maybe that's the point. Maybe it is a resurrection thing. I'm not sure what they saw in the tomb, but they saw something. So look at verse 8 here. It goes on. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb saw, went inside. And when he saw those grave clothes, he saw something because he saw and believed. What did he see? What did he believe? We're not exactly sure. And they're not exactly sure. If you look at the next verse, it says this. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So they're scratching their heads. They believe something. But then they go back and go into hiding and they leave Mary standing there. And Mary, they're gone. And Mary's just standing there all by herself. She has nowhere to go. Jesus is taken from her. And she's weeping and weeping until this gardener, what she thinks is a gardener, comes up to her. And we see this in verse 15. The gardener 
asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, this is Jesus standing right in front of her. She said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Like She sees Jesus, but she doesn't see Jesus. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. Isn't this breathtaking? Jesus, you are the creator of the universe, the word that sustains and creates all things, the word that gives meaning to life, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. You've, You've passed from life, from death to life. You're standing before us resurrected. You've just done the most important thing, literally, in the history of the world. You've changed the course of history and creation itself. You've, you've shown us the very solution to every problem we could have, all brokenness and, and all hurt and all sin. It's, it's crushed under the weight of your victory, what you've just done. Now, who are you going to tell? How do you want to tell this most important message the world's ever ever heard and I'm like I've got some ideas you know that disembodied hand on the wall thing that was so cool why don't you do a few of those around you know the book of Daniel and Jesus is like nah why don't you descend on a mountain in a consuming fire so the entire nation can see you at one time and that's what you did in Exodus that'd be great now Why don't you peel open the sky and ride in on a white horse like with a tattoo on your thigh like, yeah, that's what you promised to do in Revelation 19. Tat it up. Yeah, that's what I want to see. Okay, so I'm out of ideas. Jesus, how do you want to tell this message to the world? The most important message the world's ever heard. And he's like, but there's there's this woman. You're like, a woman? You know, at the time, a woman's testimony isn't even accepted in a court of law. A woman? It's like, no, not just any woman. A woman who had seven demons in her. A woman that the world thinks is completely worthless, who's broken. A woman that no one else would ever choose. A woman who loves me much. And so the word who spoke all things into being will reveal the greatest news in the world, not with some royal decree, but with a name, Mary. There's a lot to say about the verses we just read. But let's not miss The obvious, the message of the resurrection is unavoidably and even awkwardly personal. 
This is not a bunch of forensic evidence to scrutinize. It's not a historical question to debate. It's not a theological idea to ponder. It's a person who's standing there, who knows her by name, who knows you by name, who knows everything you've ever done and loves you anyways. And it's an offer not to the world. It's an offer to you. Mary hears this and she loses her mind. She cries out Rabboni, which means teacher in Aramaic. She, and she grabs hold of Jesus and Jesus is actually like, it's okay, it's okay. Like he says, don't cling to me, which the, the paraphrase translation would be like, hey, this is hello, not goodbye. It's all right. It's going to be okay. I've got something for you to do. Go tell the guys I'm alive. So she runs off and tells the guys he's alive. She tells them everything that he said to her. And then we find out that the guys, after they get this great news, they go and lock themselves in a room. Verse 19. On the evening of the first day, so this is the same day, just that night, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, I don't want to make too much out of this, but it's kind of a big deal. The doors are locked and Jesus appears with them. The doors were locked and Jesus appears with them. So, I don't know. Once you've defeated death, maybe appearing through locked doors is not a big deal. Um, What does it mean to have a resurrected body? All right? I do not know. But we can say a few things clearly. The first thing that we have to say is that Jesus is not a ghost or a vision here. Right? Mary can hug him. Later he's going to eat some fish. They can touch his sides and his hands and the holes in him. Like he's, he's a person. He's physical. You can touch him. He can eat. He's there. He's present. But we're also going to say that he's not simply undead. He's not a cosmic Jewish zombie here. It's not like, oh, the same Jesus just woke up and was like, wrestled out of his clothes and, and then bust through the door. No, like, this is a body that is somehow different. That he can appear in locked rooms. That he seems to appear and disappear. That people recognize him, but they immediately see something about you is different, man. So if you're a Christian or consider yourself a Christian, this is kind of a big deal because this is what we call the Christian hope. That we will be made like Jesus. Whether through death or when Jesus comes back, we will be transformed and be given resurrected bodies like Jesus. So that someday we will have bodies that are unaffected by sin, brokenness, disease. Bodies that are real in every sense, but somehow different. That they are bodies that are somehow indestructible and yet can somehow pass through locked doors. If you want to explore this, 1 Corinthians 15 is the place to go, but we're going to the next verse. After this, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his sides, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So, so if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this word is for you. 
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he has entrusted you with his message of forgiveness and life. You are sent in the same way that the Father sent him. You have the very Spirit of God within you. You are Jesus' representative on earth. In fact, the last part says, literally, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are already forgiven. It's already been forgiven. And if you don't forgive someone's sins, they've already not been forgiven. What, what he's saying there, the point is that when you speak the words of the gospel, the response is not to you, but it's to God. When you speak the words of the gospel, the, the message that Jesus died and rose again, they're not just hearing you, they're hearing God. So if you say to someone, if you hear me say right now, no matter how broken or sinful or hurt you are, you can find forgiveness and wholeness in Jesus Christ because he died not just for the world. He died for you, for your sins, for your shame, for your brokenness. He was broken for yours. And if you hear, not just that he, he died and rose again for everyone in creation, though he did, but that he conquered death so that you could have life. So that you could know that you could be made like him. If you hear those words and you trust him. When I preach the good news, you can be absolutely confident that it's not just me preaching that. Those are the very words of God to you. To you. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Um, the Apostle Paul, uh, this guy who hated Christians, tried to kill them, and then later converted when he met Jesus. He's like, oh, I was, my bad. I was wrong. So he, he changed directions and started going around the whole world, the whole Roman Empire, telling people this message that Jesus Christ, he died, he rose again. You can have life in him. And everyone thought he was weird and crazy. He goes to this place called Ephesus, which is famous for the Temple of Artemis, and is just completely rampant, pagan, wild, and he plants a church there. He starts a church, and there's a few believers there, and then he has to write this letter to him there, and he says at, towards the end of the fourth chapter, he says, you know, you need to stop living like everyone else in Ephesus, those people who don't believe. You know, they're all about sensual indulgence and purity, greed, and then he says in these key words in Ephesians 4 verse 20, he says, don't live like them. Don't do what they do. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you, literally, when you heard Christ and were taught in him. That's, that's not what you heard from Christ. That's not what you heard from him. That's not what he said to you. So geography question here. Um, where, where is Ephesus? Do you guys know? Where is Ephesus? Ephesus is up here towards the top. Asia Minor. Way up here, that dot right there. So Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. That's, that's Ephesus. And where, where did Jesus live? Do you remember? Ancient Palestine. Way, way down here. So on the other side of that map. Yeah. Um, so, so when did Jesus go to Ephesus and tell them about how to live? Oh, never. He never went there. So how can the Apostle Paul say to them, you heard Christ. You heard him. You heard his words. He spoke to you. His very message to you. He spoke those words to you. That's not what you learned from him. How can the Apostle Paul say that? 
Jesus never went there. But he says, when anyone, anyone speaks the message of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins because of what Christ did on the cross, the hope in life because Christ rose from the dead, you're not just hearing my words or his words. You're hearing Christ. You heard Christ. And when the gospel is preached, you hear Christ. It's unavoidably and even awkwardly personal that Jesus didn't just die and rise from the dead for the world, but he died and rose from the dead for you and for me. That when you weep for your sins and for the brokenness of the world... If you have ears to hear, you will hear him say to you, Why are you crying? That when you're at a complete loss of yourself and you don't know what to believe and you don't even know what to do with your life anymore, if you have ears to hear, you will hear, Who are you looking for? That if we have ears to hear, because Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, Jesus speaks. It's his voice speaking. That he's still looking for the brokenhearted, for those that no one else in the world would choose. For for Mary's, for John's. That Jesus is still ready to say, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. That Jesus is still calling people by name. And he's still transforming lives of those who will just have ears to hear his voice, hear him say their name and cling to them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this message. I thank you, Lord, that this is not my words, but it's your words. And that the gospel, Lord, that Jesus died for me And for each one of us, Lord, that it is absolutely, critically personal. And that it's not an invitation just generically to the world, but it's an invitation to me and every person here today, Lord. That you know each one of us by name. That you know our past completely. You know our dark things. You know our unbelief. You know the things we struggle with. And yet you love us anyway. And you offer this to us anyway, Lord. Father, we pray that you'll give us ears to hear and that when we hear you, we'll be changed by you. Amen.